Before Jen comes up to preach with us today, um, I'm going to share with you the scripture. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, or if you want to watch the screen, the scripture reading for today will be from 1 Timothy 3, 14, and 4, 2, verse 5. Oh, do you have that? <laughs> okay. So I'll be reading from the New International Version. So 1 Timothy 3. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believed and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received in thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. This is the word of God. Good morning. Let's pray together before we look at this word. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the goodness that you have given us. We are so thankful that you've brought us together as your church, and we're so thankful for your word, Lord, that has so much to teach us. We have so much to learn, even from a short passage of scripture like this. So Lord, open up our minds and our hearts today to hear what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start this morning by telling you a story. When I was younger, I attended a little prairie church that had a children's story during the worship service. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, a little children's sermon where all the kids come forward. And so various people in the church took turns telling that story every Sunday. And one man in particular told a story fairly frequently, and he often brought in some animals from his farm as live illustrations. So for example, around Easter time, he would bring in a couple of little newborn lambs, and his wife would help him hold them, and the kids would come and pet the lambs, and he would tell them about how Jesus was our sacrificial lamb, how he was the lamb of God. And then other times he would bring his dog and he would talk about how his dog was for him a picture of God's unconditional love for us. That this dog didn't care what he had done or what he looked like. His dog just loved him and wanted to see him. And it was memorable stories. This guy loved animals and he loved children. But there was one thing that always puzzled me about his children's stories. Every Sunday that he would get up to tell one, he would look very stern. And he would say to the kids, don't run. Come up here to the front, but no running, because this is God's house. 
And so the kids would look very chagrined and they would try their best to walk up to the front and hold in their excitement. Never mind the fact that we had barn animals up at the front of our sanctuary. It was the running that was going to be disrespectful to God. Now, I have four kids, which most of you know, and we arrived at this church last August. And so in the fall, one of the first things I did was bring two of my kids to sign up for Lisa's choir. And they were going to practice here in the sanctuary. And when we came in the doors, we could already hear the noise of the kids playing and having a blast. And we came down the hall, and the first thing that Lisa said to my son Owen was, we go up on the left and down on the right. And I looked, and there was a whole crowd of kids running up the stairs on the left, across the balcony, down the stairs on the right, round and round and round, because they were just so excited and they needed to get their energy out before they had to sit and practice. And that was when I knew that this was really the right church for our family. <laughs> so I tell you this story because in a moment it ties in with our scripture text today, which gives us the reason why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. This is at the church in Ephesus, and we've been studying this letter to Timothy for the last few weeks. And so this is what it says right at the beginning in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So that seems like a pretty straightforward reason for Paul's letter. He's writing to tell us how we are supposed to behave as Christians. And two weeks ago, Brian walked us through the first part of chapter 3, which describes the expected conduct of Christian leaders within the church. But if we were just to stop there, then we might get the impression that being a Christian is all about certain codes of behavior, meeting certain standards for living well and being a good person, and Paul does not want us to misunderstand him that way. So here, this is the very center of this letter, this portion of scripture that we're looking at today, he addresses the two foundational questions that underlie everything else that he has to say. The questions are, what is the church, and what is true godliness? The, all the other instructions that Paul gives are going to build on those two concepts. And we, if we misunderstand them, we are sure to misunderstand his instructions and their intent. So the man who told children not to run in the church had a certain view of what the church is and what godliness is. Because by his words to them, he demonstrated his belief that the church is a sacred space for worship. It's a building and godliness is being respectful of that place by our proper behavior. That sounds like a good thing to believe, doesn't it? But unfortunately, based on this text, I think that Paul would have to say that's nonsense. Because look at how he describes the church in verse 15. He calls it three different things. First, he calls it God's household, which means we're a family. The church is just a bunch of brothers and sisters who call God their father. And then secondly, he calls it the church of the living God. And the Greek word for church here, just it doesn't carry the same baggage as in English. It means an assembly of people. But we're not just any assembly of people. We're an assembly of people that have been called together by the living God who is now alive in us and through us. And then finally, he calls it the pillar and foundation of the truth. These are 
architectural words, these are building words, but he is not saying that the church is actually a physical building. He's using the metaphor of a building to describe the church, and he does this in several others of his letters. He calls us a building, but it's in the sense that we, the people, are the building. We are the temple that is indwelt by God's spirit. And so the little children who love Jesus and need to run around to get their energy out are the holy church. They're the church. And this building is simply here to serve their needs. And so in Ephesians, if we look at Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22, Paul describes the church this way. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we need to get this straight. The church is a family or an assembly of people indwelt by God and built together into a holy temple. This is then going to tie in with Paul's next reminder about what true godliness is. Because we know the church should be godly. In verse 16, he says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. This is like a little, a little poem or a hymn or a creed, something that Paul inserted here that is obviously a quotation of some, something that was known in the early church. And now I have to tell you, I wrestled with and puzzled over this little creed for several days. I just, I just could not get it because I'm used to thinking of a creed as kind of a concise and comprehensive summary of Christian doctrine, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And if you don't know what those are, you can go home and Google them because they're great. But this little creed leaves out something that to me is extremely important it's what I've always been told is the essence of the gospel. And here it's missing. Can you guess what it is? In this one verse, we've got the incarnation, Jesus appearing in the flesh. We've got his miracles and his power. He's vindicated by the Spirit. We've got his resurrection when he was seen by angels. We've got his story being told all over the world, the mission of the church, people coming to faith. And we've got his ascension back to heaven, where he sits at God's right hand in glory. What are we missing? Someone tell me. What are we missing? His death. We're missing the cross. We're missing the crucifixion. Where is it? Why is it not here? Because this is what we always focus on when we preach the gospel. Jesus paid our debt. He took our place. We are forgiven because of what he did on the cross. And I just couldn't understand why this was left out until finally I read it in context, which we have to do. We put it together with Paul's introduction to it, where he calls it the mystery from which true godliness springs. So put it another way, we could say this is the secret of true piety. The secret is Jesus' life, not his death. 
His death, to be sure, is very important. We're only forgiven and adopted into God's family through accepting Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. Paul mentioned that earlier in his letter. In chapter 2, he said, For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. But right now, Paul is not trying to answer the question of how we're forgiven or what did Christ do for us. The question is, what is true godliness? And the answer is Christ, the living Christ, alive in us, is true godliness. Christ appeared in the flesh as a human just like us, and now he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. That's what makes us godly. His death makes us forgiven, but it's his life that produces godliness in us. And we need to remember this. This is so crucial to Paul's letter because he's just given us some pretty high expectations for our behavior as Christians earlier in chapter 3. Pastor Brian reminded us when he went through these qualifications for Christian leaders that these are not just for leaders. This description of a godly leader sets out a trajectory for growth that is for everyone who is a disciple of Christ. But as we're striving and working to please God, it's easy to forget that we cannot please God in our own strength. We cannot will ourselves into being better people. It's the living Christ in us and through us who transforms us by his Holy Spirit. If we forget this, we are going to be in great danger of legalism and of undermining the gospel that we proclaim. Our religion can so easily become a list of rules and regulations, a program of self-improvement and behavior management. We start to think we're earning our salvation by doing good things. Or even if we know that we're not earning our salvation, we think we're at least we're earning some extra credit. So Paul has to remind us here, right at the center of his letter, the source of all godliness is Christ. So when he gives us these lists of things to look for in our leaders, it's not because these are the rules we have to live up to, but these things are the evidence of the indwelling spirit of Jesus. That's a really subtle but important shift. They're not expectations, they're evidence. Evidence of Christ in us. And as we read 1 Timothy, we've got to constantly remind ourselves that that foundation of all godly conduct is the fact of the indwelling Christ's. If our, if our hearts aren't filled with Christ's love, then all the good behavior in the world is not going to make us godly. But if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then our behavior will slowly but surely come to reflect his character. He will transform us so that our lives align with his will. So this now is why Paul, I think, launches into this denunciation of false teaching in the church, in particular, legalism. So let me read verses, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of questions about this passage. Who are these false teachers? Why are they saying these things? When did the Spirit clearly say that this was all going to happen? And what later times is he talking about? What does it mean these people have had their consciences seared? So I had to do some studying, and I learned more than I wanted to know about the history and the context of this passage, and I'm going to try to summarize it for you quickly. Uh, First of all, the later times that Paul is talking about here in verse 1 is both then, Paul's time, and now, our time. Because any any time after the first coming of Christ and his second coming is the later times in this context. We know that these false teachings that Paul is opposed to were already present in the Ephesian church at that time. They were something he had warned the Ephesian people about more than once. If we look back in Acts chapter 20, Paul told them, the Ephesian elders of this church specifically, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So I think this might possibly give us the answer to how the Spirit had clearly said these things. It seems that it was a particular revelation that was given to Paul about the Ephesian church. And it's so important to notice that the people who were teaching this false doctrine were not people of some other religion. It was the people who claimed to be believers from within their own number. Eugene Peterson has famously said that the devil likes to sing in the choir. So keep in mind that this text in 1 Timothy is not condemning any other religions or their rules. It's passing judgment on some of us on legalistic Christians who say that in order to be saved, you have to do, or in this case, not do, certain things. Paul even describes them here as having abandoned the faith, not because they don't call themselves Christians anymore, but because they've, they don't believe faith is enough anymore, and they've added some rules to make themselves look better. We should remember that nothing made Jesus matter than religious hypocrites. You can read Matthew 23, where he calls them whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Not very nice words. And then following in his footsteps, nothing made the Apostle Paul madder than religious hypocrites. And you can read his letter to the Galatians. In that case, the false teachers were insisting that the Christians needed to be circumcised, like the Jews, and Paul had no patience whatsoever for that. He said to them, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And so in Ephesus, where Timothy was, the situation was obviously somewhat different. Rather than insisting on circumcision, the false teachers are forbidding marriage and forbidding people to eat certain foods. And the reasons why are really not that important because Paul's answer would be the same. 
After receiving the spirit of Jesus by faith, are you now trying to please God by your works? Being a Christian is not about keeping some list of rules. It's about who is alive in you. It's about knowing Christ, becoming more like him, which is going to naturally lead to loving God, our Father, loving the people around us. Satan wants us focused on other people's behavior, judging them, keeping score, checking our lists of what they've done wrong and what they've done right, and condemning each other because their list doesn't look like our list. And I think that's why Paul attributes this teaching to deceiving spirits and even to demons. Legalism is divisive. It's destructive to the church and maybe more so than anything else. And if we follow this kind of legalism that says you have to do or not do these certain external things in order to be a Christian, then our consciences can be seared. It's an interesting phrase. The the image here is of branding with a hot iron which leaves a scar. And so these false teachers, their consciences have been cauterized, Paul is saying. They're now hardened, they're unfeeling because they don't care about the havoc that they're wreaking within the church and the fact that they're deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Every time we refuse to listen to God, he gets a little bit harder to hear the next time. And anyone can be deceived into believing lies rather than the truth. This is scary stuff. This is, Paul was really concerned about warning them and warning them against legalism. And he reminds us, be focused on Christ, on his life, rather than making up arbitrary rules for Christians. Because our hope is never going to be in keeping all the rules. Anyways, we cannot do it. Our hope is in Jesus. But just to be sure that the Ephesians aren't going to be led astray, Paul then goes on to explain why these rules about marriage and food make no sense in the first place. And it's because, simply, they deny God's goodness in creation. If Jesus, God's son, the second person of the divine trinity, could become enfleshed in a human body and live on earth as one of us, then why on earth would we think that bodily things are evil? The false teachers of this day were being influenced by something called Gnosticism, which was a heresy, the saying that Physical matter, physical things are evil and only spiritual things are good. But if a physical life and a physical body on earth was good enough for Jesus, then how could it be evil? Why would we forbid the good things that God created for us to enjoy? Now here I have to take a very small tangent because I know some of you are thinking, but Jennifer, aren't you a vegetarian? Why do you refuse to eat meat when Jesus declared that all the foods are clean and it says right here, nothing's to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving? It's a good question. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time explaining myself because that really doesn't have much to do with this passage. But I will just clarify, I decided not to eat meat as a personal choice based on my compassion for animals and a concern for our environment and not because I think it has anything to do with our salvation. It really doesn't. I don't teach or require anyone else to be vegetarian. It's a beneficial way of life for me. And it is related to my belief in God as our creator and his mandate to care for creation, but it does not make me more godly than anyone else. Only Christ living in me 
can make me godly, not what I eat. And so rest assured that for me, vegetarianism is not a legalistic rule that I follow. It's just a daily choice that I make out of love for people and animals and our planet. So now coming back to our text, I think that Paul's point is that if we're going to invent blanket rules for all Christians to follow and condemn those who don't agree with us, then we better be really, really sure that those rules are Jesus' rules. If we say, for instance, let's look at ourselves a little bit now, this might be uncomfortable. If we say, for instance, that godly Christians can't drink alcohol, why? If we say that godly Christians can't vote a certain way, why? If we say that a person's clothing, maybe even their clothing when they're preaching, has to look a certain way, why? If we say that someone's daily life, or their family, or their devotional time with the Lord, or their style of worship has to look a certain way, then we need to ask ourselves why. And here's one that may hit a little too close to home, but I'm going to put it out there. If we say people have to be baptized a certain way in order to be voting members of our church, why? Are there no spirit-filled Christians in this family of White Rock Baptist Church who've been baptized in other ways? I think there are. I know there are. So can we not hold fast to our conviction that believer's baptism is the best without then excluding other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ who were brought up differently? We need to ask ourselves about all these things. What biblical and theological basis is there for the many, many written and unwritten rules that we've invented and learn to question them in a loving manner, discuss them with each other. Do our rules really serve to build up the church? Or do they build up the family of God and unify us together under one Father? Do they promote our freedom of conscience under Christ? Or do they split us up into camps and get us fighting? So in a letter like 1 Timothy, which is full of practical instructions for the church and even commands for Christians, this little passage here in the center of Paul's letter is so important. It is Christ that defines true godliness, his life in us. As we're transformed by Christ, of course, we're going to let go of sinful ways, we're going to live in ways that honor and please God, but Christ taught there were two things we had to do. We've got to love each other and love God. And then everything else is going to fall into place. And so all of God's laws hang off these two commandments. Let's not make difficult what Jesus made very simple. Let's let the children run in our building. And let's let the senior pastor wear jeans when he feels like it. Let's let the women preach. Let's let the drums be too loud. Because godliness is not about avoiding these things, but it's about Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you.
I was hoping someone would do that. It's all about Jesus. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Amen.